Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So the book of Ecclesiastes has dealt with a lot of issues. So let's just kind of go back and review um, since we're kind of halfway through the book. The, the first part was just all about how a secular worldview without God is meaningless. It's vapor, it's vanity, it's, it's absurd. And then you remember the four ways that Solomon tried to find purpose. He found it in pleasure, he found it in um, wealth, he found it in his work, and all of that without Christ as a sinner left him feeling empty. Then in chapter 3, we saw that God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over every single detail of our lives. Then we looked at chapter 4, and we talked about how there was oppression, and there was, um, how, how do you deal with oppression at the workplace? How do you deal with competition, cutthroat competition at the workplace? How do you build friends, friendship? Then chapter 5, the first part of it dealt with um, how do you guard your steps when you go into the house of the Lord? So it talked about worship. Um, and so now we're going to talk about a topic that everybody loves to talk about. And that is the issue of money. (laughs) Seems like I just, I told Don at dinner, I'm like, man, I just preached like a three-sermon series thing on money back in September. Now we have to deal with it again. And it's not because I want to, it's because it's next in line here in the text. But um, let me just tell you guys a story of Billy Bob Harrell. Anybody know who Billy Bob Harrell is? Anybody know Billy Bob? Okay. Billy Bob Harrell was a Pentecostal preacher who was also a stalker at Home Depot. 1997, he won the the jackpot, the lottery in Texas. It was 31, come on in guys, he won a $31 million lotto jackpot. So he went from being a preacher and a Home Depot stock boy to winning $31 million overnight. Here's what he did. He um, bought a ranch, six homes for himself and his family, and a bunch of new cars. He lost everything. He ended up divorcing his wife, and then almost two years after becoming an instant millionaire, he committed suicide. And these were his last words before he died. Winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to me, right before he committed suicide. So does money buy happiness? Okay. Callie Rogers was a 16-year-old who won $3 million in the UK lottery in England. She, she was 16. She spent her money on vacations, home shopping, and plastic surgery. Now she's 22 years old. She's a single mother of two. She works as a maid to make ends meet. She's paying off her debt. And this is what she said about winning the lottery. My life is a shambles and hopefully now now that it is all gone, I can find some happiness. It's brought me nothing but unhappiness. It's ruined my life. And we could probably go on and tell story after story of people who got rich quick and um, squandered it, went into debt, committed suicide. Those are the extreme examples of people that have dealt with wealth in, in a wrong way. And so what we're going to be looking at today is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, going into chapter 6, verse 9. And so what I want to do is give you the main point of this passage of Scripture. And here it is. Here's the main point for tonight. Instead of pursuing wealth that leads to worry, enjoy God's daily gifts that lead to contentment. What are the two opposites in, those, in that statement? Worry, 
contentment. Wealth versus gifts, okay? So we're going to look at the contrast of two things here. Now, what I want to show you guys is what is called a Hebrew chiasm. And you're like, what's a Hebrew chiasm? I'm glad you asked. In the Hebrew language, there's something called a chiasm. And in our Western way of thinking, we don't, we don't process things this way. We are linear, right? How do we process things in the Western world? We make an outline, right? One, two, three, and then what's the punchline? Four. Okay, so we have point one, point two, point three, and then we have like the punchline. Okay, the main thing. And if you want to highlight something or you want to um, draw attention to it, what do we do in um, our English writing when we want to draw attention to something? What do we do? Bold, italics, highlight, underline, asterisks. It, it points us to say this is the most important. Okay, in a Hebrew chiasm, it goes like this. So you will have a section we'll call, um, we'll call it A. Section A. Then you'll have section B, and then you'll have a corresponding A and a corresponding section B, and in the middle you'll have a standalone C. Okay, so A corresponds to A, it basically tells the same thing. B corresponds to B, it's basically telling the same thing. And then C is right stuck in the middle. That's really where the writer wants to focus. That's the, that's the high point. That's the crescendo. Okay? That's a chiasm. That's very common in Hebrew language. Okay? In our Western minds, we don't like that, do we? What do we like? One, two, three, the final point. They have A, A, B, B, C. Okay? So instead of giving you the passage in order, the points... I'm going to give you the passage in the chiasm, the way it's structured in the Hebrew language. Okay? So, for example, let me give you guys the corresponding chapter 5, 8 through 12, is A. Five thirteen through 17. Whoops. I'm getting confused here. Where am I? You know what? Let's just do it <laughs> as opposed to writing it. I wrote it down. I wrote it down with the actual. Um, so you can think about it like this. You can think about it like I did like there, or you can think about it like a staircase. So you have A, A, B, B, and then... You like it that better? Yeah. Some of you like that better? Yeah. Is that more? Um, you like the staircase? Okay. Okay. So this passage of Scripture is going to correspond to this passage of Scripture. This passage of Scripture is going to correspond to that passage of Scripture. And this is going to stand alone by itself. Does that make sense? Okay. So, yeah. so what we're going to do is we're going to go A, B, C, but it's not going to be in order the way it's written in your Bible. Okay. C is going to be right in the middle. And I'm going to show you this as we go along, okay? I told you, us Westerners, we don't understand this because we don't think this way. Hebrew, Middle Eastern, Asian people, they think more like this. Uh, we're, we're a product of Greek, of Greek thought. They're a product of, of Middle Eastern and, and Oriental thought. So let's look at point one. 
And this is chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, and chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. These are the corresponding parts, okay? So, pursuing wealth will never satisfy your soul. So let's read, let's just read the whole thing at once to get you guys get the whole feel of it, and then we'll come back and break it down. So chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 9. Here we go. We'll read it all at one time, then we'll come back and break it down. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violence of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but... The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, and he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, but God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind." Okay, so this is chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, and this is chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. These two passages of Scripture correspond to each other, and they're basically teaching the same thing. And what they're teaching is pursuing wealth will never satisfy your soul. So let's look at the statements that he makes about this topic. A. First thing he says is, do not be surprised at corruption. We see this in verses 8 and 9. What does he say? If you see in the province the oppression of the poor 
and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is a gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. It's kind of a cynical way of looking at life, but what does Solomon say? If you see corruption in the government, don't be surprised. It's always been around. The more that you have higher levels of government, the higher probability there's going to be temptation for corruption. He doesn't say, it's interesting, what, what, what would he say? When you see corruption, what would, he have, what would you expect him to say? Do something about it. What does he say here? Don't be surprised. Kind of a cynical way of looking at it. And here's what he's saying. He says, what does he say there? He says, a high official, official is watched by one higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. What he's saying here is this. When it says the high official is watched by a higher, it means that the high and mighty look out for each other so that the poor have no chance of justice. There must have been some kind of network, some kind of I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back, where the higher ups were looking out for each other so they could exploit the poor. Now, in verse 9, this is the gain for land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. What does he mean by this? It means this. This is a hard pill to swallow, but let me tell you what he's saying. No matter how corrupt government might be, we still need government in order for there not to be anarchy. Okay? What would you rather have, a corrupt government or all-out anarchy? (laughs) Take your pick, I guess. (laughs) In a government, a king has to cultivate his fields in order for him to be able to make a profit. So even if he's corrupt, he still has to hire people. He still has to make sure that things run, that he makes a profit. So even, and he still sets up laws. In an anarchy society, what would he do? Or an anarchy, so what would happen? Every man for himself. It would be total anarchy. There would be no law. There would be no order. It would just be chaos. So what would you rather have, chaos or corruption? Can I vote for neither? (laughs) He's saying, don't be amazed. If you see corruption at the highest levels, because there are those that will exploit, corrupt, do things that are wicked to get ahead. Now, (laughs) it's very timely, is it? Question, how do we deal with corruption in our government, sometimes at the highest levels? We can vote? (laughs) Okay, we can vote, which hopefully we'll vote in a few weeks, or you can vote today if you got your ballot in the mail. You didn't get your ballot in the mail yesterday. Oh, Jenny did. You didn't get your ballot. You better go down and get. They're trying to say your vote doesn't count. No. I don't know, Jerry. You better go find. So, I mean, what what do you do about corrupt government? I mean, like, I don't want to be political tonight, but it seems like every day, regardless of what politician it is. There's something scandalous coming out. Whether it's a WikiLeaks email or whether it's another accuser, there's, there's something, both 
I'm just talking about the presidential candidates, not talking about mayors or other candidates across the, the, the country, but just you know, the, most, the most prominent ones that we see right now, it seems like there's, there's corruption. And so do we just live with it and say, well, that's just the way it is? Pray? Okay. What does 2 Timothy 2, or is it 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 say? I urge you, first of all, to make prayers and intercessions for all people, especially for those in high positions of authority, kings. Okay. So corruption's always been around, and it's something we have to deal with. How many here are the high and mighty? None of us here are in that position, are we? Maybe compared to somebody else. Okay. So the first thing Solomon says here is, don't be amazed at corruption. It's going to happen. Not that you have to accept it, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. The second thing he says here is, wealth is addictive. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be, what is the word there? Satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied. When you do a word study in the Hebrew language of that word satisfied, it really means to drink your fill. You can never drink your fill of money. You're in love with money. You're addicted to money. You're addicted to to wealth. Now, Paul almost echoes this entire statement in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9-10. through 10. He says this, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Is there anything wrong with money? No, we need money, right? What's Paul condemning here? The love of money. In verse 9, what does he say? Those who desire to get rich. Those who desire. The word desire really means it's a determined, passion, passionate, calculated aim. There's this strong, insatiable lust for getting rich. And what does Paul say happens? Three outcomes he gives there in that text in First Corinthians, I mean in First Timothy six. Three outcomes. If you desire, if you if you have a love affair with money, if you desire to get rich in an unhealthy way, the first thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to fall into temptation. What does he say there? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, is temptation in itself self bad? Okay. When you're faced with temptation, do you have a choice? You can, you can walk away from that temptation. Okay, so the first thing is the temptation is in front of you. What's the temptation? I want things. I want money. I want materialism. It's this unhealthy desire for, for money. And James tells us that James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown gives birth, gives, brings forth death. So at that moment of temptation, you have a choice, right? Where you can say no. You don't have to give in to the temptation. 
you can say no. God has given you the power to say no. But if you don't say no, what's this next sex? This next thing Paul says will happen to you. You will fall into a snare. What's a snare? A trap. We have these little mouse traps, you know. We have mice all over the church. Dodie knows we have mice all over the church. We catch mice all the time. But have you seen those big bear traps? I mean, think about it. It's, it's like it's, it's, a, it's an imagery of being trapped like an animal, like you can't get out. That's what this love of money does. It traps you. So number one, it's a temptation. You can say no to the temptation, but if you say yes to the temptation, you give in to the temptation, it's going to be a snare. But then number three, the worst, it's going to plunge you into a drowning experience of destruction. You will be plunged into ruin. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of the word plunge? Take the nesty plunge. What was that old commercial from the 70s? Some of you are like, I can't. I was like a kid back when that came. What does it mean to be plunged? What do you think about the word plunged? To be submerged, to be underwater, to be drowning. So if you give in to the temptation to get rich, to love money in an unhealthy way, it's going to snare you, but it's also going to overwhelm you and it's going to plunge you, it's going to, it's going to dip you, it's going to submerge you into a drowning experience. Then Paul says the love of money. This is misquoted a lot. How do, how do people misquote it at times? They say money's the root of all evil. It's not. It's the love of money. So, not all evils. Yeah, the root of all kinds, kinds of evils. Um, so, Paul even says that some have wandered from the faith because of their love of money. So, it can affect your walk with God. Paul calls it a craving, a lustful desire. A sinful love of money can possibly cause you to wander or stray from the faith. Have you met anybody that's wandered from the faith because of money. <laughs> you don't have to list their name or admit to it, but just think about that. Has that been a, a snare? And then Paul says they'll be pierced with many pangs. That word pierced means to be stabbed through with a spike. Um, can you, to really to be impaled, can you, I mean, think about the mental imagery of being impaled for a moment. It's going to leave a deep wound. It's not going to be, it's going to be painful. Paul says that's what the love of money does to you. So the imagery here is that there's an insatiable and unhealthy love of money and a desire to be right is like being impaled. A desire to be right. Rich, that should be rich. It's like, a, it's like being impaled on a stake or a dagger going right through your heart. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth with his income. So the love of money will never satisfy. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, look at number C. Wealth attracts leeches and freeloaders. What does he say in verse 11? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? When you get more goods, when you get more increase, when you get richer, those who want to eat them will increase. It's a proverbial way of saying this. When you get more stuff, people are going to be more interested in you. You're going to be more popular if you have more money. 
you're going to be the, um, the envy, and people are going to want to um, freeload and leech off you, maybe mooch off you. And so being rich comes with other issues. Um, you, you think about these movie stars that just you know, have all these different servants and all these different things. Um, just to keep up with the lifestyle, how many people do you have to hire just to keep up with the lifestyle? And how many of these people are talking behind your back and stabbing you in the back or like Michael Jackson wanting to poison you or whatever, not poison you, but you know, you got all these nefarious people around you because all they want to do is be around you because of your, of your money. Okay. More relatives come out of the woodwork. Yeah. I've, I've actually experienced some really um, bad situations in doing funerals when it comes to inheritances with brothers and sisters and family members because the, the worst comes out in somebody when, that, when they know that they're going to get the inheritance. Um, and it doesn't have to be large either. I've seen siblings fight over, you know. Um, yeah. What? A penny. A penny. Okay. All right, let's look at this next one. Wealth promotes insomnia. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, but he who eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You're so worried about money and materialism that you just can't sleep. Does anybody know who holds the longest record for going without sleep? His name is Ron, Randy Gardner. He holds the world record 11 days without sleep. He was a high school student in 1964 in San Diego. He underwent a scientific study with Stanford University to see how many days a person could go without using any stimulants of any kind. So no no-dose or caffeine. 11 days without sleep. Why would you want to do that? I don't know. Maybe they paid him. Maybe they paid him. We'll pay you. He's a high school student. We'll pay you 50, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. Back in the 60s, it may have been a good thing. But wealth promotes... In, how many sleepless nights have you had about money? Think about it. I figured it'd be a mother with a newborn child. Okay, a mother with a newborn child and money. Think about that. If you're a mom and you have money problems, or you have a young child and money problems, a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah. Okay. All right.
with money, like they replace God with money. Yeah. You know, like I can buy anything, everything. Yeah. Like me, it's God. I can go buy me. You know, if I pray about this, yeah. I can go buy it. Yeah, I think you're exact. I think you're exactly right. Let me let me move out in the audience here so I can pick you guys up on the recording. Yes. Or yeah, toy like you know you get new toys, new boat, new whatever that consumes your weekend or. Yeah, and I think I mean at the bottom the you you, the bottom line is the money becomes an idol, and you replace you replace God with money in your life. Okay, so guys, this is the first part of the chiasm. This is A one or the first A. Now, we're going to go across to chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, and see the corresponding theme. What's the theme here? The, the pursuit or the, the desire for money is going to leave you empty. It's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to keep you satisfied. So let's go down to chapter 6 and look at 7 through 9 and see if you see the corresponding theme here. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not what? Satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what is the poor man who ha- man who have what does and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. What he's saying here is the appetite for money is like striving after the wind. Notice the word appetite. It's repeated there twice. Verse 7, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Then down there in verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than a wandering of the appetite. And I looked up that word, and it was very interesting. I just thought, okay, maybe it's the word appetite, you know, like when we think about appetite. But it's the Hebrew word nepesh. And doing all the years of study of Hebrew, it really shocked me because nepesh is the word we use for soul. God breathed into Adam and he became Nepesh. He had a living soul. And so when you look up that word appetite and you think about it being translated as soul, it really carries the whole idea that it's your emotions, your passions, your appetite. It's really the totality of who you are has been overcome with this insatiable appetite for more and more money and it can never satisfy You can never drink your fill. You'll never be satisfied. And what does he say? At the end of verse 9, what does he say? It's vanity and striving after the wind. The word vanity is repeated all throughout Ecclesiastes. What does it mean? Meaningless, useless, futile, absurd. What happens when you chase after the wind? Do you ever catch the wind? No, it's a futile. It's like the hamster on on the treadmill. You never catch up. So let's look and see how Jesus talks about this. In this little parable he tells, Luke 12, 15 through 21. He said to them, this is Jesus, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay, covetousness, that's not a word we use a lot. What is covetousness? What's the root word of covetousness? What does it mean to covet? To desire, to want, to have an appetite, to, to lust something one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay? So Jesus is saying the more possessions you have, the more wealth you have, that's not what life's all about. It can cause you to be covetous. 
And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So does the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What's Jesus saying in this parable? What's, what's the deal with this man? I've gotten rich. I've gotten wealthy. I'm not satisfied with just what I have. I'm going to build stuff bigger. I'm going to store it all. And I'm going to sit back and I'm going to relax. And I'm going to take pride in what I've got and my possessions. I'm not going to thank God for it. I'm not going to uh, pursue giving back. I'm just going to hoard and keep and enjoy this. And I'm going to sit back and, and bring all this stuff to me and say, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you. Soul, your appetite is satisfied. And what does God call him? Fool. This very night, everything's going to be taken away from you. Okay? So point one that Solomon's telling us is pursuing riches will never satisfy. It won't satisfy the appetite. The love of money will be meaningless. Uh, back there again at verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied. Chapter 6, verse 7 his appetite is not satisfied. So you see this whole idea of, of satisfaction. Okay, so now we're moving into B, the second part of this little pyramid stair step. So we're going to look at the corresponding verses. So we're going to go back to chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. So here's point two. Worrying about, worrying about your wealth is a sickening evil. <laughs> okay. Worrying about your wealth is a sickening evil. Okay, let's look and see how he breaks this down. So let's go back to chapter 5, verse 13. The love of money leads to hoarding. Look at verse 13, chapter 5. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. And grievous, that word grievous can also mean sickening. There's something sick I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to his hurt. Now, you have to go kind of deeper into the, the original language there. The Hebrew word for be, riches being kept, that word kept means he closely, meticulously watches over and guards his riches selfishly. He would not let them out of his sight. It's like he, he hoarded them. And what does it lead to? What does that verse say? It leads to his hurt. He's pierced with many pangs, Paul would say. He's trapped. In other words, if you're stingy or you hoard. Now, what's that show called Hoarders? That's a scary show, isn't it? People that like accumulate all this stuff that they can never get rid of. It makes me clean my house. But let's, let's not, I mean, that, some of the, that, that hoarder show is a little bit extreme, but let's just stop and think about it. I mean, just even Don and I, are there some things that you just keep that you don't really need to keep, but you keep just because you, that you could probably, um, you know, I, I'm really curious my neighbor across the street she's a um, widow she has a garage sale what don about every every three or four months she's got a garage sale and i don't i don't know like how she gets rid of all that stuff because she's a single widow but she's got a garage sale every six i don't know if she has other ladies come in with her but i thought she must be really streamlined i wonder how much stuff every time you move you realize how much stuff you have um I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having stuff. It's just what he's saying here is that when you hoard your wealth and you're stingy and you never give back, it's going to lead to hurt. Okay? I heard of yes, Bob. Kind of interesting. A, uh, a couple had storage, a storage for 
because they're like, you know, hey, we could have bought new stuff with all the money we put in, mm-hmm. kept and everything else. And they'd say, yeah, I know, you're right. Says, How about if we go ahead and sell it? Says, oh, no, there's stuff in there I want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the attitude. So, all right, let's look at this, the letter B here. Wealth, this is in verse 14. Wealth is an insecure basis for happiness because you could lose it all in a bad business venture. Look at verse 14. Those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Um, now, there's two ways that you can have, like, okay, there's two ways you can lose money. There are times where you have a bad business venture. You, you go into business or you make a decision and you, you use the best of your ability to, to have a business plan and it fails. And, and there's, I mean, that's just, that's going to happen. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You, you learn through that. But there's those other times where you go to Vegas trying to earn all of your winnings in one night and you blow your paycheck and go into major debt because you had a bad business venture per se gambling. There's stupid business ventures and there's kind that you're just a victim of, of, of just what happens. And so um, the point is, if you put all of your hope in your finances, it could be gone in one day. Um, your 401k could tank. Um, you know, you could have a major medical emergency where all your savings have to be depleted to go you know, take care of a medical emergency. So don't, don't put hope in riches because those, those things could happen. The, sec- the second thing, he, or the letter C here, wealth is certain to disappear at death. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. How did you come into the earth? Naked. How are you going to leave? Well, you'll have some clothes on. <laughs> have, you ever seen, have you ever seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul? Anybody ever seen that? This reminds you of Job, okay? So I want us to turn to Job chapter 1 because he says, Naked you came, naked you leave. So let's find out what happened to Job. Um, Job chapter 1. So go back before Psalms. And a very interesting story about Job. Okay? We'll read all of chapter 1 because I think it sets up the stage for the rest of the book, but I want us to pay attention to... Well, pay attention to three things. We're not going to get into the whole Satan and God thing. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but what happened to Job, number one. But number two, the most important thing is how did Job respond to it? That's really where I was focused. How did Job respond to what happened to him? Because from Job's perspective, he does not know God and Satan had this conversation. He thinks it's just, you know, he doesn't see the heavenly perspective like we do. Okay, so Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Oz. No, it was the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So what is Job's character? He's a righteous man. He's, he's a godly man. Um, the issue in the book of Job is not why do people suffer. That's not the question in the book of Job. The question in the book of Job is why do the righteous suffer? Why do those who are godly and upright and haven't done anything sinful, why do they suffer? Uh, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. So he has ten children. He possessed 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Is he a wealthy man? He's a lot, okay? Servants, money, resources. 
His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house each one of his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. For Job say, It may be that the children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So what's he doing on behalf of his family? He's leading his family. He's, he's being righteous. He's praying for his family. He's, he's you know, doing sacrifices for his family. Um, he's interceding for his family um, because he's afraid his kids may be sinning. So he wants to make sure that he's being a godly dad. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, who points out whom here? God points out Job to Satan. So who's sovereign over this whole thing? God is. But then Satan is going to bring up the, the main crux here. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? That's the whole point. What's he saying? Basically, Satan is saying to God, the only reason that Job worships you is because you've given him all these blessings. Take all those away from him, and he will no longer worship you. That's the point. He worships you for what he can get. Yeah, he worships you for what he can get, not because of who you are, which is a very important thing. Do we worship God for what he can get us, or do we worship God simply because of who he is? Who he is. Now, he gives us gifts, but Satan's... Satan's tactic here is to say to god the only reason job serves you or fears you is because you've given him all these blessings take him away god and he'll he'll curse you so let's let's look at verse 10 have you not put a hedge around him and house and all that he has on every side you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face and the lord said to satan behold all that he has has is in your hand only against him do not stretch out your hand so satan went out from the presence of the lord now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job that said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While yet he was speaking, there came another that said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, this is like, I mean, almost comical. They come in one by one to give him the bad news. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. So what's happened in just like these servants that come and tell you, all of your flocks are dead. All of your servants are dead. All your kids are dead. Everything you have has been destroyed. Now let's see how Job responds to this. Verse 20. Job arose and tore his head and shaved his, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang that Sunday. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. How did he respond to everything being taken away? The way you and I would respond? To worship God and say, Lord, you gave, you take away, I'm still going to bless your name, I'm not going to sin, and I came into this world with nothing, and you don't owe me anything, and I'm going to go out of this world with nothing. 
So you're sovereign over everything. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, how would a person in Ecclesiastes respond to that that we've been looking at? If all that stuff happened to some of the people that, like the description of these people in Ecclesiastes, how would they treat God? They'd shake their fist at God. God, you did this to me. God, you took away everything. You would charge God with wrong. You would whine. You would complain. And you would basically do what Satan said would happen. The only reason you're worshiping God is because of what he gave you. Okay? Now let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Materialism leads to anger and gloom. Look at verse 16 and 17. This is also a grievous evil, a sickening evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. He eats in darkness. In that ancient culture, eating was the ultimate sign of fellowship. When you broke bread with people and you ate a meal with them, it was a sign of joy, of uh, prosperity, of friendship. What's this guy doing? He's eating in darkness. And it says there it's gloom, vexation, sickness, and anger. So what's the picture here? Materialism leads you to basically eat by yourself in the dark in utter despair. Not a pretty picture. Now, Let's go down. That's, that's B1. Let's go down to the corresponding section. We're going to go into chapter 6, so we're going to skip over. So let's go to chapter 6, 1 through 6, and let's see if we see the same type of um, themes here. Gloom, darkness, um, eating, in, you know, eating in darkness, um, being overcome with this grievous evil. So chapter 6, 1 through 6, no amount of prosperity can make up for a life without joy. Okay? He, he, he tells a little story here. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rather than, rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. So it's this man who has, what does he say? A hundred children. In that culture, having children was a big deal. So here's a guy that had a hundred children. He lived to the ripe old age of a thousand years twice over. And... He didn't even really have a proper burial, maybe because no one cared about him. What good is all your money if your soul isn't satisfied? What good is it to have all these 
riches, all these children, all these <laughs> blessings, live all this long time, but never enjoy life. Never enjoy life. He says it would be better for a stillborn who died and was spared of all this evil. At least in his mind, a little child who dies of stillbirth wouldn't have to experience all the sin and suffering of the world. Okay. So I'm going to stop here and address a question that I thought maybe you would have because a lot of people have this question. It talks about a stillborn baby. I get this question a lot, and so I want to answer it tonight. It has nothing to do with the Ecclesiastes, but it addresses an issue that maybe you're, you've thought about. So we're going to kind of take a little detour from Ecclesiastes and come back, but here's the question because he brings up this whole idea of a stillborn baby. What happens to babies, infants, and those who are mentally handicapped when they die? It's a great question. I'm sure you probably asked that. Okay. Well, the, the easy answer is they go to heaven, but let me, let me build a case for why I believe that. Okay. Number one, the Scripture does not give a lot of information on this, surprisingly. There's no explicit teaching on the destiny of infants. Uh, there's no clear didactic um, teaching that explicitly teaches it. Okay, so we don't have a lot of information to go off of. But we do go, what we do have, we can make some deductions. There are some non-biblical answers that people have given. Okay? So the question is, what happens to babies and infants? Answer, they go to heaven. Okay, why do they go to heaven? Here's some non-biblical answers as to why they go to heaven. Non-biblical answer number one. Universal salvation, everyone's going to be saved. So obviously, since everybody's going to be saved, babies are going to be saved. How do we answer that? Is everybody going to be saved? No. Okay, so we can count out universalism. Okay, another answer they'll say is, well, post-mortem salvation. There's a second chance after death to be saved. You can trust Christ after you die. So babies are given a chance to trust Christ after they die. Everybody gets a second chance after birth. Does the Bible teach that? Okay. The Catholic one is baptismal regeneration. When a baby's baptized, it covers sin and allows them into heaven. So when you baptize or christen a baby, that gets them into heaven because they've been regenerated through baptism. Does the Bible teach that? Okay. So what does the Bible teach? Okay. Let's look at some biblical teachings. I've got one, two, three, four. Well. These are, these are numbered weird, but let's just go through what I've got here. Okay. Biblical teachings. There are no innocent babies. Everyone is born with original sin inherited from Adam. Now, before you misunderstand what I'm saying there, I'm not saying that babies go to hell. What I'm saying is, is that David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born with original sin. Every single person is born inheriting sin from Adam. So even babies that are still born from conception have inherited original sin from Adam. Romans 5.12 Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now have you thought about this question? Why do babies die in the first place? Why are they still born? Why are there miscarriages? Because of original sin of Adam and Eve. They brought death into the world. Okay? Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, 
as one trespass, that's Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So we have to basically make the argument that there, there's no person born except for Jesus that has not inherited sin from Adam and Eve. Okay? Okay, so babies are born sinful. But if a deceased infant or mentally incapable, when I say mentally incapable, I'm talking about someone like Zachary, my son. Okay? My son Zachary will be called mentally, obviously mentally handicapped. He does not know right from wrong. He can't speak. He's nonverbal. Um, he can't make distinguishings between, I mean, like we can discipline him in a way, but he, he, I can't sit down and explain the gospel to him or, 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 or he doesn't know why he's being punished. He just knows, you understand what I'm saying by something. So he's got the capacity of what we consider like an infant or a toddler or, or those, those, those types, that, that age. So if a deceased infant or a mentally incapable person is saved, it must be based upon Christ's atonement. Nobody's saved without the death of Christ. Okay, Acts 4.12, There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's not universal salvation. They're still saved by the blood of Christ. Number three, if they are saved, it can only be because they've been regenerated and sanctified by the grace of God. What does it mean to be regenerated and sanctified by God's grace? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 4-5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So babies that are going to be saved or going to go to heaven that die have to be regenerated. They have to be the recipients of God's grace, okay? And then, if they are to be saved, their salvation must occur before death, okay? Because we don't have second chance after death. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Okay, so here's the arguments from Scripture as to why I believe babies and mentally incapable and infants go to heaven. And don't, the age of accountability is often what it's called. It's kind of confusing because some people think it's an actual age, like it's five or it's four or it's eight. There is no, the Bible knows of no particular age. It may be different for each child, but it's that point where, well, let me just go through these arguments, okay? Arguments from Scripture. Infants are incapable of moral, good, or evil actions. So like a stillborn baby, a miscarried baby, an aborted baby, or an infant does not, does not morally know what they're doing, do they? Okay, they're in, so in Deuteronomy 1.39, As for your little ones who you said would become a prey... And your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, children were said to not know their right hand from their left, to not know good from evil. They were not at an age where they could distinguish good from evil. Okay, they were still sinners, but they didn't know right from wrong. Okay? 
Divine judgment is administered on the basis of sins committed in the body. When people are judged, non-Christians, they are judged for deeds that they did in the body. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me ask you a question. Can an aborted baby or a stillborn baby or a miscarried baby do deeds in the body for which to be judged? Okay. And even a, a newborn baby or an infant, can they truly be judged on what they've done because they don't know what they're doing? Now, I'm going to give you a note here. This does not apply to pagan adults who are responsible moral agents and know right from wrong through general revelation and conscience. Two different categories. Infants and pagan adults are two different categories because they know, adults know right from wrong. Now, I've heard this argument from um, an old Presbyterian that wrote a book um, on infant salvation back in the 1800s. This is his speculation. Um, it's an interesting thought, so I'll share it with you. Um, I'm not surely through if I processed through it all, but it's, it's an interesting argument. His argument is this. If for some reason babies were to go to hell, then because they don't know right from wrong, they would be experiencing the fires of hell and not know why they're doing that. They would have no concept of why they're being punished. So why would God send a baby to hell to have them experience something that they wouldn't even know what they're experiencing and why? Now, an adult that's in hell, they know why, right? Because they did wrong, okay? Also, we've got the death of David's child with Bathsheba. So let's go to 2 Samuel for just a minute. And you guys know the story with David and Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her, had her husband Uriah killed. Nathan the prophet came to him and said, you know, told him that little parable about the sheep. And then David realized he was a sinner. And then Bathsheba got pregnant. So let's pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. Everybody there? 2 Samuel 12, 15 through 23. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And therefore David sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Okay. Seven-day-old baby dies. 
And David's weeping and mourning and praying and fasting that the baby doesn't die. What happens? The baby dies. David goes and worships. And they're like, why are you... When the baby was alive, you were all mourning and fasting, but now that the baby's dead, you're, you're worshiping. What was the change? What does verse 22 say? I shall go to him. I shall go to him. Well, how's David going to go to the baby when the baby's dead? What's he saying there? I'm going to see the baby again when I go to heaven. Now, that's a cryptic statement there. Can't build a full theology out of that, but it leads many scholars to believe that David had some type of understanding that that seven-day-old baby went to heaven and David was going to see the baby again. Okay, so that, that's, there's some evidence there from the Old Testament. Okay, let's talk about regenerate infants in Scripture. We said if babies were going to be saved, they had to be regenerated even in the womb. They had to be saved by God's grace. We have two examples. Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God set Jeremiah apart even in the womb. And what do we know about John the Baptist? Luke 1.15, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So how was John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born? Okay, so if God can do that to infants that have not been born, could He not do that today to infants in the womb, causing them to be regenerated on the basis of the atonement of Christ, given the gift of, 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 of regeneration? Let's also look about how Jesus dealt with little children. Jesus, yes? God doesn't show favoritism, so why should He do it in the Old Testament? Okay, yeah. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The word children there. Padion in Greek means infant. In the secular Greek language, it was used of a child up to about seven years old. That's where some people believe that seven is the age of accountability. Again, the Bible doesn't teach that, but in, in that ancient culture, the, the term child was used for basically a newborn all the way up to age seven, and it was the word infant, child. Um, also in Mark, you have that same word, Mark 10, 13-14, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to these little children. So Matthew and Mark use the Greek word pateon, which means infant. Luke uses a different word, brephos. Luke 18, 15-16, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, Luke uses a different word there, brephos, infants. That could actually also mean embryo, or unborn, or newborn, that word. Okay? So, infants are capable of salvation 
in the sense that the Holy Spirit can sovereignly regenerate an infant, renew their heart of stone with the heart of flesh, and cause them to be born again through the merits of Christ and His cross without them ever repenting and believing as an outward expression of what's happened on the inside of them. So here's the conclusion. All children who die at infancy and all mentally handicapped persons whose intellectual and moral judgment cannot surpass that of children are saved. And here's our statement of faith. We believe that all infants and severely disabled persons with minds physically incapable of comprehending the gospel are among the elect and will be saved. So any questions? This has been the traditional view of Protestant evangelicals for, for centuries. So any questions on that? It's one thing to say, I believe God will save all infants. It's another thing to say, here's a biblical reason why I believe that. I mean, we believe it, but why do we believe it? And so there's kind of a biblical rationale. Okay. Now back to Ecclesiastes. So we've looked at A corresponding to A, B corresponding to B. Now we're at the top of the pyramid or the main point. This is the highlight, the underline, the bold, the italics. This is where he wants us to camp out. He's shown us really... A kind of a negative view of materialism. Money does not satisfy. It's a sickening evil. It's depressing. You're going to eat in the dark. Um, it's it's going to you're going to you're going to you're not going to be satisfied. You're going to hoard your money. You're going to have moochers. That's not a good thing. So we go now to the climax, the conclusion, and it's actually right in the middle. So it's in chapter five, verses eighteen through twenty. Enjoy God's daily gifts. So let's read verses 18 and 20 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What's he seen so far? Look at verse 513. There's a grievous evil I've seen. Chapter 6, verse 1. There's an evil I've seen under the sun. What does verse 18 say? Behold, I've seen what is good and fitting. Fitting. We've seen that word fitting before. Go back to chapter 3, verse 11. It's the same word. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Beautiful, fitting. It's the same word. So he's basically saying, in other words, the appropriate, good, beautiful, God-ordained way of life is to find enjoyment in eating, drinking, and work. Have we not seen this before? Seen it twice. Go back to chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Chapter 2, 22 through 25. What has a man from all the toil and striving of the heart with which he toils me at the sun? Wait a minute. 
Okay. For all the days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and have enjoyment? What's, what's he saying there? Eat, drink, work, find enjoyment. It's the gift of God. Go to chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. What does he say again? Verse 18, chapter 5, Behold, I've seen what is to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. Who is markedly absent from AA and BB? Who's never mentioned? God. When you get to see, how many times is God mentioned? Like four or five times. Verse 18, God is the giver of life. Verse 19, God is the giver of wealth. Verse 19, God is the giver of our ability to enjoy His daily gifts. Verse 20, God keeps us occupied with joy in our hearts. One commentator has said this, we don't have to be rich to find something to enjoy each day. It's a good, it's a good word. So who's the giver of life? God. Who's the giver of gifts? God. Where do we find our joy? In God. And that's really where he can't, this is the climax. So really what Solomon has done here, he's shown us two choices, two options. And he's kind of done this with the stair-step chiasm pyramid type thing. Two choices he's laid before us. Two options of how to live. What's option number one? Pursue wealth. And all it's going to lead you to is worry. You're going to be worried. You're not going to sleep. You're going to hoard. You're going to um, have your appetite never satisfied. You are going to have a love of money. It's just going to lead you to despondency. It's never going to satisfy. That's choice number one, worry. Or choice number two, enjoy God and His daily gifts to you, and that will lead to contentment. Be content in what God gives you in your daily gifts. It doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be riches. You have food. You have drink. You have your job. Enjoy that and be content with the gifts that God has given you. Those are the two ways to live that He's telling us. Okay? So the New Testament speaks about this as well. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty. What does haughty mean? Snotty, snotty, haughty, stuck up, prideful, arrogant. arrogant. I like it, snotty, haughty. Did you say snotty? <laughs> snotty, haughty, yeah. Not, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who provides us richly with everything to what? Enjoy. They're to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. What does Paul say there? What's truly life? Finding contentment in God's riches that God gives you. Set your hope on, on Christ. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. 
this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus addresses this as well. So what are the two options, worry or contentment? Pursuing an appetite of wealth or pursuing joy in Christ? Okay, what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 6, 24 through 33. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How many times is the word anxious repeated in that? A lot. Jesus says, if you live this way, you're going to be anxious, you're going to worry, you're going to not have your appetite satisfied, you're always going to be um, pursuing wealth, the love of money is going to lead to pains, you're going to eat in darkness, you're not going to have sleepless nights, you're going to worry. Or you can seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you and you will be content. You will experience the joy of the Lord because you're seeking Him first. Remember what Jesus said earlier, Luke 12, 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, in closing, let's turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, because Paul is going to teach us on contentment. I think that's one of the things that we 21st century American materialistic people need to learn is contentment. So let me ask you a question. Is contentment something we have to learn? Yes, Paul's going to tell us that. Is contentment something that comes easy? What comes easier? Because this is all operating out of the flesh. I would say contentment would be a choice. Yeah, it is a choice. Yes, it's definitely a choice. You have to learn to choose it. <laughs> okay. Let's let Paul answer it for us. I mean, you have a good point, Bob. You have to make that choice to be content, but it comes through experiencing learning. Let's, let's let Paul speak for, for himself. So Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. All right, good. Some of you know that song. So verse uh, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Okay, so do you see the two things there? 
What is Paul saying? Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Pray. Ask the Lord. And what's he going to do? He's going to give you the peace that passes understanding, which we could also say is contentment. I think peace and contentment are linked together. Okay? Peace, rejoice, enjoy. Now let's go down to verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Where's Paul when he's writing this? The Roman prison. And in verse 11, he had learned to be content in any and every circumstance. Is contentment something you can go buy in Walmart off a shelf and put it in your back pocket? How is true contentment really learned? By prayer, practice, experience. Whatever life brings at you. Paul says, listen, I've been brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned it. Whether I've had a lot, whether I've been hungry, whether I've been needy, no matter what situation I've been in, whether I've had a lot of money, whether I've been barely scraping by, whether I have all these friends, whether I'm lonely, whether I'm through you know, thick or thin, all these situations, the one thing that I've learned is to be content. And how does he do that? He does that through prayer and petition, a lot of prayer, asking the Lord to, to meet his needs and to, and to supply his needs. And God has given him that peace. God has given him that contentment. And one of the things that we see here that Paul is so thankful for is the partnership he has with the Philippian church that had helped him in his ministry. And one of the truths we see in this packet, pa- passage, it's very hard to comprehend in our American consumeristic and materialistic society is that things don't really matter. Relationships do. Remember the guy that had a thousand years and a hundred kids and he didn't really enjoy it because he was so wrapped up in his money. So let me ask you a very simple question tonight. Are you content? Content with where God has placed you? Content with your finances? content with your job, content with your relationships. Does contentment come easily? No. That's why we have verse 13. Verse 13 is sometimes quoted out of context. It's a a coffee mug scripture. It's a t-shirt scripture. We quote it all the time, and, and I'm not denying what it says, but let's put it in context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, in the context, what's Paul talking about the all things there? Yeah, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, but what's the context? I can learn to be content and not worry and be anxious. Those are the all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. So the only way we can truly learn contentment, the only way we can truly enjoy life, 
not be caught up in anxiety and worry and materialism. The only way is through prayer and supplication, relying upon the power of God to transform us from the inside out and to cultivate that contentment and that peace in our hearts. And it comes through experience and prayer and relationships and a healthy church family. Can you do all these things in isolation? You can. Are you going to be successful? Okay. So Solomon has told us this is an evil. This does not satisfy. The appetite is never satisfied. The love of money is never going to leave you content. But when you realize God is the giver, God is the focus, it's God's power, it's God's will, it's, it's focusing on Christ, and through prayer and supplication, He's going to give you the peace that passes understanding. He's going to give you that contentment. His power is going to sustain you through those times, and you are going to, through those experiences, learn more and more how to be content in all circumstances. Easier said than done, right? That's why we need to pray for that power. All right, so we are, are done tonight unless there's any questions or comments or observations. Matthew, yeah, we just looked at uh, Matthew 6.33. Yeah. Uh, that's Psalms. Psalms. So I, I feel like if you're seeking God, God can, can bless us. Yes. And it may not be like we don't, we don't want to have a um, an imbalance where if I see God, He's going to bless me with everything I want. But I think that the more you seek God and align your desires with God, your desires of your heart become God's desires and He will bless you with what He knows you need. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we, have, we even have, like, metabolic situations when we know we're anxious. Stress levels and other things. I mean, our body tells us even. So, Laura, you were going to say something. I was kind of thinking about how you were talking about the infants being regenerated. Mm-hmm. I know we're talking about ones that die, but obviously Jeremiah didn't. And so do you think that some are regenerated really young like that and then they realize it later mm-hmm. in life or what? Because I would, yes. I have to say, I kind of would even see that when I was with the Cubbies as mm-hmm. kids. Some yes. of them had such a yeah. heart for God at uh, such a young age. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that God is sovereign in his regeneration of children and they could be regenerated at a very early age. They just may not be able to express it as far as what's happened on the inside until they're a little bit older and they can articulate kind of what's going on. Doesn't mean they're not. They're, we need to make a difference between. Let's make a difference between regeneration and a profession of faith. Is that a good point? God sovereignly regenerates people from the inside through the power of the Holy Spirit. But a profession of faith is that point where they articulate what has happened to them in a way that they understand it. And then it's usually followed with baptism. So I believe that God can regenerate a very young child, 
They just may not be able to make a profession of faith. Does that, does that make sense? And that's why sometimes parents, it's hard because you see these evidences of salvation in your kid and you're not quite sure. And that's why you come and talk to Pastor Sean and I sit down and they, they clam up with me because they're like, <laughs> it's okay, I'm not that scary. <laughs> that happens a lot. Well, he says at home all the time. you know. So anyway, um, I just think as parents, we need to be praying for our kids' salvation, recognizing evidences of God's grace, always encouraging them to pray and go directly to Jesus. Um, anytime you see evidences of growth or, or the gospel, encourage that. Um, have them, you know, like, you know, you, you see it when you work with children. And they may not have it all there, but it doesn't mean on the inside God hasn't been doing a work. We just can't see that. Does, that. does that answer your question, Lori? Okay. Good question. Is there another hand over? Any other questions? I brought up the infant salvation because I just thought, like, all of a sudden there's this topic of a stillborn baby in there, and it got me thinking, well, somebody's probably going to ask that, or somebody's been wondering that, what happens to children. Um, they, we know the answer, but, like, how do we come to the biblical answer? So, Yes, Every, Betty. Everyone is going to go through some difficult times in their lives. Yes. I don't know how you get contentment in those times if you can't talk with God about it. Yeah, if you don't pray. Would that we'd all be like Job. I won't say that he was content. <laughs> Maybe at the end of the book he got there. It took him a while to get there. 